Good morning. My name is Steve, in case you don't know me. I'm one of the preachers here, and I'm glad to be with you. So in the last few weeks, what we've been trying to do in this sermon series is, is have like a walkthrough, like a high-level walkthrough of the Bible. And what we've been trying to do is to give you some sense of how to understand the Bible, how to interpret it, no matter what page you open to. Because honestly, it is a very difficult book. I mean, it is, it is entirely clear. You know what you're reading as you read it, but you could spend your whole life in this book and never reach the bottom of it. So it, it's, it's at once both very clear and at the same time, very confusing. And so we're trying to do our best to help you understand how to interpret it wherever you find yourself. It's overwhelming. Sometimes it can be confusing. There's 66 books that make up this volume and there's a dizzying range of literature within it. You've got sections that give laws. You've got sections that narrate history. You've got a creation narrative. You've got apocalyptic literature, which is a confusing thing in and of itself. You've got a whole book of prayers, which is the Psalms. You've got a whole book of aphorisms called the Proverbs. And that's just the Old Testament. And that's just the major categories. And when we get into the weeds, like let's go a few clicks lower, it gets even more confusing. God creates the earth in the beginning and the fullness thereof. And then he includes like a couple books later extensive details about the kind of underwear that the Levites need to wear in order to minister in the tabernacle. And then speaking of the tabernacle, we've got like 11 whole chapters in Exodus devoted to the kind of weave that you have to use in order to make the, the garments and, um, and, and the kinds of fruit that need to be carved into the woodwork. I mean, it's very extensive and, and confusing. And then you've got these soaring narratives of God's redemption in Exodus and Samuel and David and Goliath. You, uh, you also have... Um, stories about exile and return. There's so many different kinds of things that we encounter in the Bible. And the point of all of this is, is that it's a complex book and it can be flat out confusing for those who take it seriously. So all that said, our goal in this series is to try to help you understand the whole Bible on its own terms in terms of its message, in terms of its function, so that wherever you find yourself in its pages, you know what to do. You know how to understand it. That's a tall order. <laughs> I mean, how, how are we to understand then God's descent onto Mount Sinai in fire while at the same time understanding Levitical underwear? Is there an interpretive key that helps you understand what the creation is about and what the exile of Israel is about? And as it turns out, there is. This would be a rough sermon if there wasn't, but there is. There is an interpretive key. And Matt read it at the beginning of his sermon two weeks ago, and it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 24. He has been resurrected. He is spending some time with his 12 apostles. And here's what he says. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, here it is, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So get this. 
When Jesus wants to summarize the interpretive key of the entire Bible, which at, at the time of his speaking was just the Old Testament, the New Testament had not yet been written. When he wants to summarize it, uh, he says that everything written in Moses and the prophets and the writings, he says Psalms, but Psalms was the first book of the writings, so stands in for all of it. It's about him. That's the interpretive key. So that's the first answer to our question. Is there an interpretive key that binds the whole thread, um, binds the whole narrative together in the Bible? Is there something that can help us understand both creation and exile? Is there something that can understand, help us understand Sinai and Levitical underwear? Is there something that can help us understand what's going on in genealogies while at the same time understanding the most devotional of Psalms? Yes. Jesus says, it's me. That is how you understand what is written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. It's about me. So all that by way of review of what Matt has already taught us when he walked us through the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then the historical books, which he walked through last week. Today, we get to the prophets which is admittedly one of the more uh, confusing sections of the Bible, d very difficult to interpret sometimes. And, and even if you agree, agree that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the interpretive key to understanding this section of the Bible, it's still pretty likely that you're going to show up to the prophets and, and not have a, a clear idea of how that key actually fits the lock and turns it. So my job today is to show you exactly how that happens. Now, in order to do that, I need to just take a little aside here and help you understand the structure of the Bible. Now, we tend to think of our Bible, at least our Old Testament, as divided into four sections, okay? Now, stay with me here. Just stay with me. That division of genre actually comes to us from the Latin translation of the of the Bible called the Vulgate. Now, we tend to think of our, our Old Testament as divided into four sections. Those four sections would be the Pentateuch, the historical books, the prophets, and the wisdom literature. If you, look at, uh, if you look at your Bible, the table of contents, or you flip through the Old Testament, you will see that that's how we order our Old Testament. Those four sections, Pentateuch, first five books, uh, historical narratives, wisdom literature, and prophets. And when it was translated into Latin, um, it was translated so that Western people could understand it. Remember, the Bible is not a Western book. But it was translated into Latin so that Western people could understand it. And when it was thus translated, the books of the Old Testament were then rearranged from their original order. And that's the order that we have inherited in our English Bibles. Because that order, according to genre, Pentateuch, historical narratives, etc., that makes more sense to the Western mind. We ordered according to genre. But that was not the original order of the books. That was not the original division of the books. Now, I'm not going get, to go get into the weeds here to talk about how the Hebrew Bible is ordered, although it is tempting. Mm, it is, it's delicious, but I won't. We're not going to get into those weeds, but it is... It, we do need to talk about how the Jews divided their Bible. And I already mentioned that we divide our Bible into four sections, right? And our main criterion for doing that, for, for erecting those, those walls of partition, is genre. 
Okay, are we still, we still together? Uh, trust me, stay with, this is beautiful. Okay, so the reason why we um, order it that way is because of genre. Now, there's a historical, if, if we come across something in the Bible that's like a historical narrative, stick it in the history section. If we come across something that's wisdom literature, stick it in the wisdom section. Um, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature goes in the prophets and so on and so on. But the Hebrew Bible, here it is, the Hebrew Bible was actually split into three sections, not four. Three sections. And, and if you want to know what those sections are, well, we, Jesus just told us what those sections are. Do you remember what he said in Luke 24? The law, the prophets, and the writings. That's what they call the wisdom literature. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, I know that this might seem entirely <laughs> inconsequential to how you actually read your Bible, but if you stick with me here, uh, when I learned what I'm about to share with you, it absolutely revolutionized how I read the Bible. So the Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. And don't freak out or anything. I'm not saying that like books were taken out and some were added in. No, I'm just saying same, all the same books, just rearranged. Like if you go to my basement and pull my Hebrew Bible, like the actual one that's in Hebrew, off the shelf, you will see it's not, the books are not ordered in the same way as ours are in the Old Testament. All the same books, different order. Um, so I'm not saying anything was taken out or putting, put, put back in. It's just same books, different order, according to a different criterion. So what is that criterion? What governed the arrangement of the Hebrew Bible? If we order our Bible by the criterion of genre, the folks who ordered the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, their criterion for order was covenant. Don't miss that. We order by genre, they ordered by covenant. Covenant is the criterion by which the Old Testament was originally ordered. So in Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament, we have those three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law then, if, if covenant governs everything, the law, the Pentateuch, is the outlining of the covenant. What are the stipulations involved in that covenant? The prophets then, which would include what we would consider the historical books and the prophets, that's, they're all there in there together. That would be, how, how does, what does it look like for a group of people, namely the people of Israel, to live out the covenant in history? We get to see it. We, we get to understand it. And then the prophets, the, the, Folks we would typically think of as the preachers, like Isaiah and Ezekiel and those folks, they come in and give an interpretation to that history. What does the Lord actually think about what's going on? So we have the covenant laid out in the Pentateuch. We have the historical, like what, what does it look like when a people tries to live out the covenant? And then in the writings, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, we have what does it look like for any people at any time to live out the covenant? Okay, now we're going to get to that next week. But here, we're just focusing on uh, the prophets. So to me, the key to understanding what's happening in the prophets is to understand that they go right along with the historical narrative of God's people trying to live out the covenant in history. Because of the way our Bibles are ordered, it's, it's easy to think that the Old Testament follows like a strict timeline. The narratives of the historical books like um, Joshua and Kings happen, and then the prophets come along after that. 
That's how it's ordered in our Bibles, but that is patently not how it goes. The prophets arrive in Israel in the same period of history as Joshua and Judges and David and Solomon all the way to the exile and beyond. The prophets and the historical books are happening at the same time. Somebody gasp. I know. I, is, is it, maybe this is old news to you guys. It blew my mind when, I, when somebody first pointed this out to me. So Isaiah is preaching during Hezekiah's reign and kings. Samuel is preaching during Saul and David's reign. Jeremiah is preaching during the exile and afterwards. I mean, do you see this? The, these two sections are happening at the same time, and that's why they're only one section in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible. Okay. Now, why have I labored? to explain all this, Take, taking up all this time in the sermon just to make that point. I think it's because if you understand what I just said, then interpreting the prophets becomes so much clearer. If you understand that the prophets preached during the time of Israel's history, the time of the historical books, then it becomes instantly clear what they're there for and how to understand them. So when we think of the prophets, we tend to think of, you know, in general, our first thought becomes, uh, these are a bunch of guys who came in to the nation of Israel and talked an awful lot about the end of the world in the future. Now, to be fair, they did talk about the end of the world, but that is actually only a narrow slice of what they talked about. Instead, I want you to think of the prophets as covenant prosecutors. Okay, so if, if covenant is governing the whole of the Old Testament and we're in the section of the prophets, you need to think of the prophets as God's covenant prosecutors. So we're gonna use a courtroom metaphor. The prophets are God's prosecuting lawyers. Remember, we said that the theme that binds everything together is covenant, and I would argue that binds the whole New Testament to the Old Testament and everything, and that would be another fascinating one, but I don't have time. It's covenant. The Pentateuch gives us the stipulations of the covenant, which is to say the law. And I mean, do you see that? Like, in order to have any kind of proceedings in court, what do you need? You need a law, right, on which to base the arguments. Well, we have that law given to us in the Pentateuch. You also need a judge. And the Lord, at various times throughout the Old Testament, identifies himself as the judge of Israel. You need a defendant. In this case, it's God's covenant people. Um, you're also going to need a defense attorney, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, and you also need a prosecuting attorney. And that's the job of the prophets. The prosecuting attorney, their job is to argue based on the law that the defendant is guilty and therefore deserving of judgment. Okay, so far we, we understand all this, yes? Okay, good. So in that way, the prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys bringing forth the evidence of Israel's brazen idolatry as they are living it out in the, in the historical period that we're considering. They're comparing their behavior with the law and what is required in it, and then pronouncing the sentence of judgment upon them. So when you turn to the first page of Joshua and begin reading, and when you turn to the last page in Malachi, just think, what I'm reading here is an account of a courtroom trial. 
It's a very long one, but that's essentially what you're reading. Now, the, to be fair, there's a lot more going on in the prophets than just that, but I, I think this is a governing rubric that can help you understand it. Um, and, and, and it is kind of confusing, so if you do open to Joshua and then read all the way through Malachi, you know, we stick our wisdom literature in there in the middle, so it can get confusing. But ultimately, I think this is the best way of understanding it. Now, without actually reading the whole of the prophets to you now, I do want to give you a summary of the entire proceeding of that trial. Like, if you're going to read this in the newspapers, an account of this trial in the newspapers, what were the conclusions of this trial? Here's what you would see in the first paragraph. The first summary comes from what Matt taught us last week uh, in the book of Joshua. Um, And that, remember, according to Jesus' reckoning, Joshua would be the first book of the prophets. Um, It says this in Joshua 21.45, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's the summary of God's behavior in this courtroom trial. Not one of his promises fell to the ground. Everything that he promised, he accomplished. Faithful in its entirety. Faithfulness in its entirety. So that's God. Um, Now let's see what happens with the defendant. What's what's a summary we can... um, we can summon for that. Uh, I actually think, and this is subjective, but I think a good summary of the people's behavior through all of this comes from Judges 21-25, and this is a theme that runs all the way throughout it. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is the summary. These two things. These are the summary of the entire section of the prophets, which in the three-part division includes the historical books. God kept every promise he made. The people broke every obligation they ever had. That's your summary. And the prosecuting attorneys come in to warn them. Judgment is at hand. The law says this, you have broken it, therefore judgment is coming, repent. Let's go one step further. Um, People often have a great deal of trouble interpreting what's going on in the prophets. The language is, um, in many cases, bleak uh, and heavy with metaphor, um, and it can be very confusing. So I want to give you an interpretive scheme that's going to allow you to understand what you're reading in the prophets, no matter where you find yourself. So um, you probably don't realize this, or at least I didn't realize this before scholars pointed it out to me, is that there's actually one chapter in the Bible, one chapter that unlocks the entirety of the prophets' ministry. If you want to understand the prophets, all of them, that huge section in your Bible, you really only need to understand deeply one chapter. And that chapter is Deuteronomy chapter 32. And what I'm about to argue is that if you understand Deuteronomy 32, then you understand in basic outline the entire section of your Bible which the prophets occupy. In fact, um, while it's true that the prophets are basing their arguments against the people on the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the different laws that come after that in Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy, that's true. 
Even so, everything the prophets preach comes right out of Deuteronomy 32. Every preacher has to begin with a text. And and I don't think I'm pushing it too far to say that every prophetic preacher from Samuel to Malachi took their text from Deuteronomy 32, whether they state it or not. So let's look at this chapter. And the whole chapter is very much worth reading. I commend it to you. But for the sake of time, I just want to show you three sections. Now, remember, Deuteronomy was the record of Moses' last sermon before the people, as they're standing at the edge of the promised land, and before Moses dies, he gives them one last reiteration of the law and God's covenant promises and his provision for them, and that's what the record of Deuteronomy tells us. The first part of this chapter in Deuteronomy 32 vindicates the faithfulness of the Lord. He never let them fall to the ground. All throughout the wilderness, did he ever let their shoes wear out? No. Did he always feed them? Yes. Did he always care for them and fight for them? Yes. So the first part of the chapter vindicates the Lord. But then in verse 15, the focus shifts to the infidelity of the people. Verse 15, but Jeshuan grew fat and kicked You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So in the next section, because this is what the nation of Israel has done, because they have gone after other gods, and will in the future, more to the point, the next section in Deuteronomy 32, we see the enactment of the covenant curses. And those curses are are reserved for those who break the covenant. And just notice that what you're about to hear, it sounds an awful lot like what the prophets are preaching hundreds of years later. Listen, in verse 19. The Lord saw it, everything I just read, the rejection of him, going after other gods. The Lord saw it and spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters and said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows upon them, and they shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. And I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave. Indoors terror for young 
man and woman alike, like the nursing child and the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared the provocation of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. So all of this, Moses tells the people, is coming to you in your future. And it's exactly this set of curses that the prophets come much later and say, these curses, O Israel, have come upon you. And these curses reach their apex in the exile of the Israelites from their land. They're flung out to distant lands, to live under foreign domination, in a land that is not their own, amongst a people that are not their people. But then, then something astonishing happens in Deuteronomy 32. Starting in verse 36. For the Lord, I mean, after, after everything is just said, the Lord has done all things well. Not one of his promises have failed, but the people have rejected him, have gone after other gods without any reservation. The covenant curses will come upon them, which is all that they deserve, and then the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice, verse 43, rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses the people's land. So this chapter begins with a prophetic word that despite the Lord's faithfulness, the people will utterly reject him and his covenant. Then it goes on to say that the people will bear the curses of the covenant for their disobedience. And then in a shocking reversal, the section that I just read says that God, though he is altogether right in making his arrows drunk with blood and taking vengeance upon his people, although he is absolutely right God will dismiss the lawsuit and fight for his people by taking vengeance on those who took vengeance upon them. 
and he will restore to them all that was lost. And I especially love that the Lord testifies that this will happen when their power is gone. They will have no power to rescue themselves, and at exactly that moment, the Lord will rise and deliver his people from his own just wrath. Now, what on earth is going on here? Remember I said earlier that we would come back to the defense attorney. Now's the time. The, The people had no defense. The evidence was clear. The law was plain. And yet, God himself provided a defense for the indefensible. And we could see the bare outlines, the shadowy outlines of who this attorney would be in the prophets in Isaiah chapter 9. And we go to many places, but I'll just um, go here. Excuse me, not Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 11. 8 through 11. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is the lawyer. He was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you remember how we started? The resurrected Jesus was talking with his disciples, and he told them everything that's written in Moses and the prophets and the writings, it's about me. And here's where we see that coming into plain view. God's plan all along was to send a defense attorney, not merely to argue for the curses of the covenant to be nullified. That that would make a mockery out of the law. But rather, he offered himself as the one upon whom the curses of the covenant breaking fell. And therefore, he would set the guilty defendants free and make them, in the words of Isaiah 53, righteous. And isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 3? He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the one who came, who should have been the ultimate prosecuting lawyer, actually came and bore the curse of the law on behalf of the guilty defendants, and that is the true meaning of the prophets. Now, I know that a lot of you and a lot of people watching, 
You're dealing with discomfort. You're dealing with uncertainty. Some of you are dealing with genuine suffering. And did you, did you hear the message of the prophets for you this morning? It's that you are loved beyond all reckoning. The Lord himself has delivered you from the curse of sin and death, though you deserved to bear it on your shoulders. And if the Lord has argued your case and found you righteous, who shall ever make you guilty? Now we come to the table, as is fitting, after hearing the gospel. And we often come to the table, if you're anything like me, with the stipulations of the law hanging over you. You feel the guilt. You feel the curse that ought to have been yours. We know we're guilty. The case is airtight. But as you take the bread and you take the wine, excuse me, the juice, the cup, behold the evidence of your vindication. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. From all eternity, right into this moment, let us pray.